0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
3: G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on the Country Hour, you'll hear from State Shadow Minister for Agriculture, Emma Keeley about the Ombudsman's damning investigation into the politicisation of the public service in Victoria. And the federal government this week has released, it has passed its nature repair bill. So what is that and what's it going to mean for farmers? You'll also hear about a 36-hour cheering marathon starting in Warrnambool tomorrow morning to raise money for a mental health charity. Get in touch on the text line 467 842 722. First up, though, Rural News and Jane McNaughton has got that for you again.
4: Thanks, Angus. Farm lobby group WA Farmers says without offsets, the federal government's nature repair bill is practically useless. Earlier this week, the government reached a deal with the Greens to pass the bill, which it says would allow miners, farmers and other landholders to cash in on nature-boosting practices. CEO of WA Farmers, Trevor Whittington, says without the offsets, it's farciful.
5: The best way of managing those offsets is to put in a... A market-based solution. The alternative is you have bureaucrats sitting around a table deciding where the projects to go ahead and um, that causes problems where you don't know what's what's an acceptable level of trade-off. So this is a well-developed system. there has been a lot of discussion. Previous government, industry, agriculture supports a trading-based system and the Greens have just pulled the rug because they just can't stand profits and they just don't understand markets.
4: And we'll be hearing more about the agriculture industry's reaction to the federal government's nature repair bill later on in the program. A whiskey distillery in the state's northwest, which sources barley from local farmers, has gone into voluntary administration, putting nine jobs at risk. David Ostrowski, chief executive of Austria Distilleries in Robinvale, says he's hoping to find investors to inject $3 million into the business to keep it afloat.
3: I began the business in 2007 here in Robinvale, and I've put all my effort blood sweat and tears into this business recently we have overcapitalized in plant and equipment over the last 2 years and this overcapitalization along with the downturn of consumer spending uh, as well as the rising costs in raw materials has led a shortfall in much needed working capital our creditors have been extremely generous uh, with us especially over the past year but obviously the local businesses have to run and they have staff to pay with families to feed. And so hence some understandably were unable to wait until we finished raising capital and some very apologetic and I'm working hard with the administrators to
2: close out on investors so our debts can be settled.
4: With as much as $8 billion expected to be spent each year until 2040, regional businesses have a huge opportunity to benefit from the closure of mine sites in Australia. That's according to a new landmark report from the CSIRO, which looked at opportunities for Australian industry from mine closure and remediation. Dr Guy Boggs heads up the Cooperative Research Centre for Transformations in Mining Economies, CRC Time, which funded the study. He says the end of mining doesn't mean the end of the economic potential.
2: Australia's got a world-leading mining and and resources sector. We know that every mine goes through a construction phase, it goes through an operational phase, and at some point it it will go through a a closure and and transition into a post-mining use phase. And as the industry's been maturing over the past decades and our standards around closure and rehabilitation requirements and our thinking about what, life could be like after a mine does come to its end and the technology innovation that we've seen in this space, what we're seeing is this massive growth in the opportunity to deliver really innovative mine closure solutions, and we're seeing an industry grow around that opportunity.
4: And for most people, juggling the demands of one career is more than enough. But for 24-year-old Ruby Buckanan she's in the depths of balancing two, and it's probably rare to see these two professions combined. She's moving from the University of Armidale to Far West New South Wales and Ruby has been following her passions in both agriculture and law. Long term I want to like live on a station and own a station one day and I think that what's becoming apparent as I'm getting older the way the only way that really that someone who wasn't born on a station born into it can kind of achieve it is by like going out and ha- and having to earn a reasonable amount of money to do that and I think from working on stations for the past six years and stuff like that. I haven't saved quite... I haven't saved a lot of money. I don't really think there's, there's a lot of money in it. It's more like... It's more a lifestyle, definitely. And so if my other passion, like being law, if that is the way that I can get to help people and own a station, and well, then that's kind of something that I'm willing to compromise on. And that's today's edition of Rural News.
3: Thanks, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. Well, what's your take on the damning report into the politicisation of the Victorian public service under former Premier Daniel Andrews? Yesterday, Ombudsman Deborah Glass released the results of her investigation, finding a culture of fear and secrecy had eroded the impartiality of Victoria's public service. I spoke earlier with Emma Keeley, Deputy Leader of the Nationals and Shadow Minister for Agriculture.
6: Uh, The report gave us a damning rundown of the culture of fear that has developed over time in the Labor government. And what we've really got to see now is a a new direction forward. We've got to see the new Premier Allen uh, to make sure that she is providing transparency and accountability to the Victorians that elect her to be there.
3: Farmers, uh, people in regional Victoria, how should they interpret the Report when they read about things, just, just to pick one thing out of it, uh, there was a line in there about the suburban rail loop, controversial project in regional Victoria because of the sheer cost of it, saying that it was hatched up by a former ministerial staffer, kept secret from departmental officials and infrastructure experts and bypassing the normal policy development process. So how should your everyday person be interpreting something like that?
6: I think across rural and regional Victoria... We've had this concern for a long period of time that all of the money is being spent on Melbourne projects and we just don't see our fair share out in rural and regional areas. There's massive cost blowouts of projects in Melbourne and as a result, we're not seeing that investment into our rural and regional areas, into agriculture and into our country communities.
3: The Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, as part of her report, she recommended that there be a public service head appointed to independently oversee employment in the sector. Is that something that the opposition would do if it came to power?
6: What we do know is that there has to be some changes when it comes to making sure there is a level of transparency and accountability for any government of any colour. Uh, we can't have this process where everything that, every decision that is ever made is informed by documents which are held up cabinet in confidence and are never ever shown to the Victorian public. Uh, that desperately needs a review and that's something that certainly the Liberal na- and Nationals have always supported and we will continue to do so. And if we have the opportunity to do so in government, then we would make sure that the Victorian public is better informed.
3: The report found that those apolitical or, or neutral, as, as the public service is meant to be, voices were, were marginalised in the public service and that some staff were... Uh, to paraphrase essentially just telling the government what it wanted to hear, so reading into that has that would regional of Victoria have missed out as a result of that?
6: There is a concern, and we look at the evidence around where the money's been spent by labour and certainly rural and regional Victoria has missed out. Uh, It's really important that we have a government that is informed by evidence, that it's informed by strategic plans on how we can make sure the entire state thrives and flourishes, not just those areas where uh, it suits the, the Melbourne narrative of the time and opinions that are being fed into that. Uh, we can't have a culture of fear where you can only share good news amongst the department. We need to make sure that we have a public sector that can provide frank and fearless advice, and that certainly doesn't appear to be the culture that Labor have encouraged or supported. And in fact, if people are living in fear of losing their jobs and losing their careers, losing their livelihoods, then We've really got a lot of problems with this Labor government, and we need to need to see from them a big change going forward.
3: In her report, Deborah Glass said that uh, one of the callers into the the investigations phone submissions line called in and, to quote, said that generally people were shit scared of upsetting the government. Uh, is that realistic in terms of what you've heard in Spring Street?
6: There's no doubt that there is a level of. Fear, even in the the people that I've spoken to in terms of speaking out and speaking up when they can see things are not quite right, and when we 've got a public service which should be it should be working across all political views it should be working beyond that it should actually be working towards what's the best outcome for Victorians. And we've seen a catastrophic failure of the ability of the public sector to do that because of the culture of fear that has been put in place by the Labor government. Uh, It's something that must be reviewed and we need to hear from the Labor government, not the denials uh, that we heard from the Treasurer uh, recently where he has said, oh, there's no evidence in this report. It's just perhaps another educational report to uh, refer to a phrase that was referenced at a previous Ombudsman's report. We need to make sure this is taken very seriously by the Labor government and simply dismissing it as, well, there's nothing to see here, would be something that's very disappointing to all Victorians who want to see change.
3: Another aspect of the report was a previous criticism of the government that uh, a concentration of power has shifted from the public sector into the Premier's office, and it said that Daniel Andrews had roughly as many staff as both the New South Wales Premier and the Prime Minister combined. Uh, Is that something that uh, if the opposition came to power that you would look to change?
6: Uh, It's something that needs to change right now. Uh, We cannot have a bloated Premier's office that is riding roughshod over the informed decision of our public sector that have experience, often decades of corporate knowledge in there. They should have the best interests of the state at heart. Instead, we've seen a state which is being run by political operatives and it just is appalling that we've got that situation in Victoria where we've got such a bloated premier's office and there is no accountability around the decisions that are being made out of that office victorians deserve a lot more than that and I think that this uh, these findings will should flow through at the polling booth at the next election because victorians have had enough
3: Deborah Glass also described, to quote, as rushed and shoddy that those recruiting processes in shifting former ministerial staffers into the public sector. What's wrong with that, with with staffers going into those public sector roles?
6: There's a problem if people are appointed to roles that they have no experience in, that they don't have any knowledge about, that they're making critical decisions about where taxpayer money will be spent, about what the strategic direction is for the state, if they are making decisions that are actually around the best outcomes for a political party and of the government of the day. And that is problematic because it means that we are not getting value for money for as Victorian taxpayers and we are not seeing the best outcomes for the state. And that's where there may be some people who are very good and bring a level of expertise, but where they don't, we see distrust in the public sector of people who work who didn't get those roles, who perhaps would be better... Uh, serviced in those roles, they start to lose face, faith and confidence and they lose morale. And when we've got a public sector, which is as big as it is in Victoria, uh, we need to make sure that we get value for money and that they are well supported to inform government and provide that feedback to government that makes sure that we are investing in the right areas, that we minimise the opportunity of taxpayer money being wasted of projects being followed that are a bit of a fickle idea and a favourite project of the Premier or of Ministers and uh, to favour politics, we actually need to see decisions made that are best for all Victorians.
3: From where you sit, have you seen any changes since Daniel Andrews resigned and Jacinta Allen became Premier? Uh,
6: unfortunately, yesterday on the... the The Treasurer's comments around the Ombudsman's finding would indicate there hasn't been any change, but the key thing is that we need to make sure that we have a government in place in Victoria that provides a transparency, that has a level of accountability, so that Victorian taxpayers know and understand where their money is being spent. Uh, That is what is most important, and that's what we need to see, is some change from Premier Allen's government to ensure that uh, we will make sure that they are accountable to the public that they release documents that they uh, provide the evidence behind their decision making because uh, at this point in time we have not seen that and it's something that victorians want it's what the victorian ombudsman has demanded Uh, we need to see a change and it needs to happen very soon
3: as you mentioned deborah glass said that a culture of fear and secrecy had pervaded the public sector and that its impartiality had also been eroded so what would you do to change those things
6: well, the recommendations that uh, the ombudsman have put forward need to be taken on board, and we need to see that culture of fear removed. We need to see more transparency and accountability, and that includes uh, the reports that have been hidden from the Victorian public need to be released. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't have this conga line of uh, of VCAT cases around which are around refusals of FOI requests. We need to see a government which is delivering more transparency and accountability to Victorians who elect the government to be there. And that's what Victorians expect. Uh, we know that uh, we have got a Premier who's got a history where she can't manage money, can't manage projects. We need to make sure that we see this level of transparency and accountability so Victorians know where the money is being spent and why we're not getting value for money.
3: That was Emma Keeley, Deputy Leader of the Nationals and Shadow Minister for Agriculture and State Agriculture Minister Ros Spence was contacted for comment. Quite a few texts coming through on that story about the Ombudsman Deborah Glass's investigation into the politicisation of the Victorian Public Service. Uh, This person says regarding Daniel Andrews, this is just the tip of the iceberg, so much corruption still to be exposed. Simon asks, Angus, what is the relevance of discussing the Ombudsman's report on the Country Hour? Otherwise, it's just more Labor bashing on the country. Well, Simon, the way the public sector functions obviously affects all people, including regional and rural Victorians in the ag community. That's why. And no Labor bashing being done by us, not by the country. I think the criticism of Labor there was clearly emanating from uh, the independent ombudsman, Deborah Glass. But thanks for your text. Henry says, Hi Angus, it's easy. Sack the lot and put a boss in charge who's not scared to hire and fire people. Thanks, Henry. Uh, and Chris says, Angus, Daniel Andrews has always operated under a cloak of secrecy. We just need to look at what he did to farmers in Western Victoria with wind farms, let alone many other questionable things he was involved in. Thanks to your text, 0467 is the way that you can get in touch on the text line.
4: The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
3: The Federal Government passed its Nature Repair Bill after reaching a deal with the Greens on Tuesday night. The new laws will allow farmers and other landholders to cash in on nature-boosting practices. There were two big changes to the Government's original bill, taking offsets out of the Nature Repair Market Scheme and provision for a so-called water trigger... That would force environmental assessment of new unconventional gas projects. Farmers for Climate Action Chief Executive Natalie Collard says there are new farm income opportunities in the bill.
1: We've been watching the passage of this legislation incredibly closely. It's really important for us that it's been passed with offsets removed. That was a key part of the lobbying we've been conducting. This means that farmers will be able to make drought-proof income from biodiversity and carbon credits together. We surveyed our farmers and they told us they were extremely concerned about biodiversity offsets undermining the intention of not just the legislation, but all climate action, simply because farmers are very clear that offsets are not acceptable now and not going to be acceptable in the future, because the only way to protect nature is to protect it, not to bulldoze it and then create offsets by growing something similar somewhere else. That's not a net win. And so what
4: kind of projects do you think could be supported by these credits?
1: There's two pilot methods at the moment, um, paying farmers to enhance remnant vegetation and to make biodiverse carbon plantings. So as long as these credits are real and are measured, it's an absolutely fantastic result because it means that farmers can start diversifying their income through increasing biodiversity immediately. Do you expect there'll
4: be a lot of interest from farmers to take part in the biodiversity Mm. credit market?
1: we do think so one of our farmer members from tasmania he participated in the pilot what they found was that they removed weeds um improved and protected 700 hectares of remnant bush including planting 90000 trees they've got 30 new species of seedlings or 30 species of seedlings i should say not all new plus some grasses extensive weed okay. removal And they feel really confident that what they're doing is supporting their farming venture and protecting and managing their land for the future.
4: What kind of benefits do biodiversity credits offer that aren't offered under the existing suite of of carbon credits? I
1: think one of the, the key things that we've been looking for is the ability to marry biodiversity and carbon credits on the same project This is a a big thing that's been missing. And what work needs to happen now that the
4: legislation has passed? What's the process now to get people involved and get the market set up?
1: I think the expansion of the pilot methods um, that are already underway and have proven successful is the first step. But we'll certainly be working with government as they lead the development um, with industry of turning this legislative win into outcomes for farmers.
3: That was Natalie Collard from Farmers for Climate Action speaking with Elsie Kennedy. You may have heard earlier in rural news that lobby group WA Farmers says without offsets, the federal government's nature repair bill is practically useless. Well, the Gippsland group has been calling for a nature. Who's been calling for a nature credit scheme? Says it's happy to see offsets scrapped. Gippsland Agricultural Group General Manager Jen Smith says questions will now focus on how nature market accounting can improve on carbon markets.
7: It's something that we've actually been calling for and thinking about for, you know, a good sort of 3 or 4 years and so you know to see the bill passed is is fantastic and to see, you know, some of the amendments and changes that were made off the back of advocacy from other farming groups around offsets and stuff, is it's good to see that. I think that's going to control, you know, people kind of continuing to do what they do and, and just offsetting and, and sort of skewing those markets. You know, for producers, as we've been moving towards understanding emissions intensity and what those agreements, those international trade agreements and things like that mean for our businesses, when we think about that biodiversity market, we'll be really curious to see how this bill is actually implemented at a grassroots level. How is it accounted on farm? How is it, is it measured and monitored? And you know, with some of the carbon market stuff, the practicalities and the flaws in, in some of the accounting and the practical things that happen on farm. You know, we'd like to see some of the advice that we've given and perspectives that we've shared, you know, we'd like to see that sort of taken on board and and taken into how that that actual nature repair bill is, is set up.
4: Is there any clarity at the moment on how a biodiversity or a nature credit scheme might differ from the carbon schemes?
7: Most farmers are all pretty good at sort of speculating and thinking about how things will be. So no clarity yet in that space. With some of the carbon markets and things particularly in our southern farming systems you know we're not able to operate in that space because of our scale there's some of the rulings around you know needing to be more than 400 or, or having an agricultural operation that's of, of enough size and scale for those carbon brokers and aggregators to be interested in in sort of dealing with us and pulling together the projects we'd really hope that some of those barriers around you know the size of your farm or whatever aren't aren't actually affecting it and hopefully with regard to those biodiversity measures you know we'll see a more sort of practical approach there if the farmers are involved in maybe the co-design or some of that from from right from the beginning and I think the biggest bit of sentiment from producers around the carbon market is that it's not rewarding those that have been doing the good that have been sort of doing good environmentally friendly practices a long period of time so we'd really want to be seeing you know previous practice captured and and things that are in really good condition already you know we'd want to see some sort of you know, credit or place in the market. For that. and We haven't seen that in the carbon market.
4: Do you think there's anything that producers should find concerning about the prospect of a nature repair market?
7: Look, not to my knowledge. We're very well regulated already. We're seeing, you know, we see a lot of compliance and consequence and and different things for, you know, environmental damage already. I think that's sort of fairly well sort of regulated within area. You've just got to drive through the countryside and see, you know, Pivot's not doing a full circle because there's remnant vegetation there that's been protected and things like that. So I think there's enough in our systems already that that is sort of managing that. I don't know that we'd necessarily want to see too much more regulation uh, uh, placed on that. But, you know, if we can see a nature repair bill that looks at the whole farming system and biodiversity across the whole system in our landscapes, you know, farmers, as a general rule, there's benefits to us having, you know, shade for our stock and and shelter for our stock and healthy waterways and the like. But we we, we don't actually know what this looks like on the ground. We don't know how it will be measured or monitored. We don't know how it will be accounted. So we'll all be eagerly awaiting that.
3: That was Jen Smith from the Gippsland Agricultural Group speaking with Fiona Broome. Get to headlines shortly. Before that, though, a few texts. Quite a few uh, going back to our earlier interview with Emma Keeley about the politicisation of the Victorian public sector. Farmer Joe says there is no doubt things have to change. But given the former PM secretly swore himself into five ministries and his LMP colleagues haven't come out and publicly criticised him, Why do we think an LNP government in Vic would be any more transparent? All sides of politics are as bad as each other, says Joe. Tom at Winslow says, Hi Angus, the current Premier of this state is the epitome of the political yes-person that are found in and around political parties, often purely for personal advantage. Uh, Anne on our story there just then about nature rehabilitation says really crucial to use local species only in native vegetation enhancement Brenton too asking for a weather forecast for the Swan Hill area wondering how much rain is on the way we'll get to the Bureau very shortly Brenton will put that to them but right now though let's head off to news headlines with Laura Mayers
8: Good afternoon, Angus. A Port Ferry Bakery has been fined $5,000 for employing underage children without appropriate permits. In the Melbourne Magistrates' Court this morning, Cobb's Bakery was handed the fine without conviction. The bakery had earlier pleaded guilty to employing four children under the age of 15 without a permit and failing to ensure the children were supervised by someone with a working with children's clearance. The court heard the bakery had broken the law between two summer periods while struggling to find staff following covid the latest business new south wales survey shows a promising uptick in sales for the murray region despite christmas trading expected to drop by 11% across the rest of the state confidence among riverina murray businesses remains strong business new south wales regional director riverina murray serena hardwick says this is reflected in their plans to grow Nearly three times as many fi- family violence cases were heard in specialist court in Victoria last financial year. 22,900 applications went to the magistrate's family violence division in 2022-23, to 23, a massive spike from 8,400 the year before. The Crime Statistics Agency revealed the numbers yesterday and showed that 22% of those cases resulted in offenders being sentenced to custody. And Victorian Water Minister Harriet Shing says constant improvement is vital to keep flood-prone communities safe. It comes after public hearings for the parliamentary inquiry into the 2022 floods concluded in Melbourne yesterday. Ms Shing told the inquiry that coordinating, coordinating responses from local, state and federal governments is key. And for more of your news and stories, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash local.
3: Thanks, Laura. Laura Mayers with News Headlines. Let's head to the Bureau now and find out how much rain's on the way. Christy Johnson is on the line. Afternoon, Christy.
9: Good afternoon, Angus.
3: Christy, when's rain going to start falling in Victoria?
9: Yeah, look, uh, probably from tomorrow, um, but particularly on Saturday. So at the moment, there's not not too much. There's a few light showers um, in the north of the state, most of it not reaching the ground, um, so we've we'll just had a millimetre at Sunarnid, 0.8 at Arcadia, but yeah, not uh, not much in the gauges so far, and that'll probably be the case um, for most of the day. So there might be one or two places that'll get a few millimetres, uh, whereas there's a slightly heavier shower. But yeah, a lot of it um, it's quite high based and fairly dry air, so a lot of it evaporating before it hits the ground. But tomorrow we have a much more active sort of weather system moving in. Um, so we're looking at uh, sort of widespread showers and thunderstorms. Now, once again, they will be quite elevated. So the rainfall totals aren't huge and uh, and probably um, a bit hit and miss too with the nature of showers and thunderstorms. But we're potentially looking at widespread falls of around one to eight millimetres across the state. But if you happen to get a thunderstorm, it could be sort of more like 10 to 20 millimetres. Um, Storms are also probably most likely through the west and the north of the state, although there is a possibility pretty much anywhere um, during the day tomorrow. It's also very windy, so we've got a severe weather warning that's been issued for the central and the the central ranges and the western part of the northern ranges, uh, eastern ranges, and um, that will probably also extend along the uh, northeast ranges to the um, New South Wales border um, in this afternoon's issue. So the current warning covers the next 24 hours, but then tomorrow afternoon it will extend further across uh, across those eastern um, ranges. Uh, we also have the potential for severe thunderstorms. So obviously, with with the windy conditions, um, you know the the areas that are likely to see the wide uh, the damaging wind gusts sort of are through that elevated part. But any time we get thunderstorms, that can drag some of those winds down to the surface. So. There's the potential for severe thunderstorms uh, across much of northern and western Victoria um, with you know, basically any storms that occur do have the potential to produce some of those damaging wind gusts just because there's so much wind through, through the atmosphere. Probably most likely to occur up in the Mallee though um, with the weather system really coming in from South Australia.
3: And I see, Christy, on that, just, just for Mildura, that, that sounds like a shocker day because there's the, the chance of a thunderstorm, strong winds, and a top of 44 degrees.
9: That's right. So I should mention the temperatures. Um, yeah, today, looking at getting into the low 30s, maybe 36 for Mildura, um, in the north and then in the south, sort of into the, the mid-20s. Um, but tomorrow, as you say, much warmer as we have the, the winds go northerly and strengthen, 44 for Mildura, 41 for Swan Hill, through the rest of the north looking at getting into the mid-30s and then in the south, mostly into the low 30s, slightly cooler perhaps near the coast, places like Warrnambool. But, um, yeah, so it's going to be hot, dry and windy. So that, of course, means elevated fire danger as well. So there is a uh, potential for extreme fire danger up in the Mallee and obviously with the risk of thunderstorms and, um, you know, potentially starting fires as well as any other sort of activity that could start fires. It's um, yeah, asking everyone to be on their guard, particularly up through the Mallee. The other thing I should mention is that there's also a high thunderstorm asthma risk up in the Mallee tomorrow. Um, At the moment, there's a a moderate risk in the Wimmera and uh, a high in the southwest districts as well. Um, That may be slightly downgraded. The pollen forecast today has come in a little bit lower for the Wimmera and the southwest, but uh, we'll see. But anyway, there is still a risk of thunderstorm asthma, um, particularly through the western parts of the state as well. So, so lots going on: um, hot, windy, potential for thunderstorms, damaging wind gusts. Severe weather warning. So, just uh, asking everyone to stay up to date um, with the warnings as they get issued. Um, but the the well, I don't know if it's good news. There's a, a trough that's moving through, probably coming through t- later tomorrow through the west, and then moving through overnight. Um, through central districts and and into the east, Uh, and that will give us some cooler conditions on Saturday. So the temperatures mostly in the high teens in the south and the low to mid-20s in the north may be getting up to around the 30 or the low 30s in the far northwest where the trough will take a little bit longer to get through. Um, But with that, we have a bit of a rain band that looks like developing. Now, the area that's likely to get the most rain stretching from the Wimmera uh, through the central district and into western south Gippsland. So the, the far north, the far east and the far southwest probably getting a little bit less. Um, and then through that sort of central part of, of Victoria uh, looking to get the higher rainfall totals, but it will depend exactly on the location of that band. Um, looking at, at widespread rainfall totals away from that main rain band of sort of maybe two to eight, maybe 10 millimetres, But in that rain band, looking at potentially up to 20 millimetres or so and even maybe uh, a little bit more um, in in some locations. So that's probably our wettest day. There is also the potential for thunderstorms in the eastern part of the state on Saturday, uh, probably mostly in the morning, um, although then just contracting to the eastern ranges probably into the afternoon. Uh, Some of those um, could produce, particularly up over the eastern ranges, could produce some uh, damaging wind gusts. Maybe even some large hail, so some potential up there. Um, by Sunday, we've got, uh, I guess, continuing with some shower activity. Um, basically, the heaviest rain, which did look yesterday like it might be poking into the west of our state, now looks like staying back over South Australia. So, just some showers, maybe the slight risk of a thunderstorm in the northeast. Uh, temperatures Sunday recovering a little bit. Um, we've got temperatures into the, I guess, a little bit cooler down in the southwest around 19, but the low 20s through most of the south and getting up into the, the high 20s in the north. Um, Monday, keeping that to activity going, will be in sort of moist easterly flow, so quite humid and unstable, giving us some showers and thunderstorms, but fairly hit and miss across the state. Uh, temperatures into the mid to high 20s in the south and back into the low to mid-30s in the north. Tuesday as well, pretty similar, um, potentially showers and thunderstorms about with that humid, unstable air, temperatures in the high 20s in the south and the, the mid-30s through the north. Uh, and then uh, on Wednesday, that's when we get our next change moving through, so a cool change coming through, pretty hot ahead of it, potentially, or pretty pretty warm, I guess, getting still into the 30s. Um but then that cooler change moving through with some showers and thunderstorms. And finally a bit more settled weather for Thursday as it all clears out and there may be some early morning thunderstorms in the east, but they should be easing and uh and much more settled weather coming for Thursday. But lots happening in the uh in the outlook period. Probably the main focus is that risk of of potentially severe weather of severe thunderstorms and uh um hot, dry weather conditions with elevated fire danger tomorrow and then the potential for that rain band sitting across central parts of the state on Saturday.
3: Okay, so a fair bit of rain on, on Saturday but almost for the entire outlook there are going to be showers about?
9: Yeah, there are. So we basically once we have this weather come through over the weekend and then we're sitting in a, a sort of a humid, slightly tropical um, easterly wind flow that's bringing down some moisture from the Coral Sea, and so that will uh, will give us just hit and miss showers sort of right through the start of next week. Um, so yeah, can't promise rainfall totals in that sort of uh, you know hit and miss kind of showery, thunderstormy uh, like setup. It it can be it can be quite hit and miss, but um, but yeah, there's definitely uh, showers on the forecast right through the the outlook period. But we are expecting. Saturday to be the wetter day, particularly if you're in that rain band that looks to be sort of through the Wimmera Central District, maybe North Central and into Western South Gippsland.
3: Just a couple of uh, questions on the text line before I let you go. Uh, north and South parts of the state, Brenton says, just wondering on the weather forecast if there will be rain in the Swan Hill area over the next few days and much to expect and will there be a total fire ban for the, the Swan Hill area up for tomorrow is Brendan's question.
9: All right. Well, to answer the first question, um, just a couple of millimetres potentially for the Swan Hill area, uh, both um, today uh, and tomorrow, and really through the outlook period, just one or two millimetres possible each day. Uh, In terms of the total fire ban, that is a decision that's made by um, the CFA. So I think that will be probably made fairly soon and issued if that's going to occur.
3: Possibly possibly um, likely, though, yeah. based on the forecast well, you gave us.
9: <laughs> yeah, from our perspective, we will be having a fire weather warning for that district uh, with extreme fire danger, I suspect. Uh, and often that does go hand in hand with a, a total fire ban, but technically they are separate products. So that's, I don't want to step on the toes of the CFA there, um, but they'll be issuing that uh, you know, early afternoon, I suspect, if it's, if it's to occur.
3: Understood. And just uh, down in the south, Jamie's near Camperdown and he says, Hi, Angus. Question for the Bureau. Busy trying to get the canola done. Got the truckies running. It's uh, The canola's pouring in, burning the candle at both ends. Just wondering how much rain for the Camperdown area and when it might start.
9: All right. So probably nothing today. Um, maybe a couple of showers about tomorrow, a few millimetres uh, on and off, hit and miss. Hard, Hard to say. But for Saturday, that's when uh, the Camberdown area could be sort of on the edge of that rain band. And if so, it would probably be, you know, looking at 5 to 15 millimetres. Just depending on where the edge of that main rain band is. But yeah, potential for some decent rainfall on Saturday. Once we get past, then we're just back to that hit and miss, maybe showers on and off a couple of millimetres a day sort of um, regime through, uh, as we are for most of the state, through Sunday and, and the start of next
3: week. OK, thanks, Christy.
9: No problem. Thanks, Angus.
3: Christy Johnson there talking about the, well, the wind, the, the hot and the rain that we've got coming up. Kevin at Myrtleford says, Good afternoon, Angus. A couple of spits of rain on the windscreen already. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. Let's talk Basin Plan now because after months of protesting against water buybacks, irrigation communities are now coming to terms with the legislative changes to the Basin Plan. The new laws were passed in the Senate last week and some of the key changes include extending the plan's deadline by several years, resuming Commonwealth buybacks and removing a cap on the amount of water that can be bought from farmers. So what's been the reaction in the irrigation intensive Goulburn Valley? Annie Brown reports.
0: The Murray-Darling Basin plan has been officially changed and water buybacks are well and truly back on the table. This is Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek. As you know, we're already in the market for voluntary water purchase for another part of the plan and uh, we'll soon be concluding that first tender. Um, Voluntary water purchase is one part of this plan. We'll be continuing to work with states and territories on vital water-saving infrastructure. Uh, We'll continue to look at other options for recovering water, but we uh, will—we have always said a voluntary water purchase will be part of delivering the plan, and we'll look at that next year. Russell Pell is a dairy farmer from Wyuna in the Goulburn Valley. He hasn't welcomed the news.
10: Uh, I could see where they're going. It was very disappointing, very disappointing from... From our point of view, the last time that they took water out of our region or, you know, they bought water out of our region, you know, they're sort of saying it never had a major impact. Well, I mean, you've only seen the reaction from all the demonstrations and what have you, even all we've had over the last three or four weeks.
0: Goulburn Murray Irrigation District Water Leadership Group co-chair David McKenzie says the future is unclear.
2: I think a lot of people are feeling very anxious about their future. It's not just irrigators and farmers. That's people and businesses in the entire supply chain, food processes, town services, um, schools and small towns. I think everyone in regional communities understands what the impact of taking another 750 gigalitres out of the consumptive pool could mean for them. People are going to have to work out how to transition and adjust really quickly.
0: You've been advocating for your community over the Murray-Darling Basin Plan for a very long time, but in more recently, uh, in the last month, you've been to Canberra to speak to the Senate um, and you've been part of public protests as well with um, a strong message uh, against water buybacks resuming. Yes. Where does this leave the campaign now?
2: Um, I think we fired our last shot, to be really honest. The legislation has passed. Um, the federal government and Tanya Plibersek now have the power to implement whatever they like. The protections that were in place for communities, which were primarily a cap on buybacks and a socioeconomic neutrality test, are gone. There's a very weak test that the Minister now has to have regard to socioeconomic outcomes um, when she makes decisions on buybacks. Um, I haven't seen the full detail of that amendment. It only happened yesterday, but that's what I'm reading this morning. There's no point even talking to these people anymore because they've now got the full power to bring out the sledgehammer do whatever they like to communities with as blunt an instrument or as untargeted as they like, pursue this volume of water that they can't deliver to where it needs to get to, and they'll say they've delivered the basin plan. You can tell that I'm pretty dispirited by the whole thing, Annie.
0: (laughs) However, not everyone is upset about the decision. John Pettigrew is a retired orchardist and water spokesman for the Goulburn Valley Environment Group. He said the group welcomes the changes to the plan, but it shouldn't. I've come to this.
10: I think it uh, gives the minister now the option of buybacks as, as a, still a last resort to the implementation of the Basin Plan. Whilst we welcome it, we're not necessarily celebrating it because we're still very disappointed that it got to this point uh, that an incoming government is virtually left with no other options uh, following a decade of uh, undermining of the plan under previous governments.
0: Being based in the Goulburn Valley, there's a very strong sentiment in that region of um, not wanting water buybacks to resume and, and that'll be part of the, the new rewrite of the plan. What's your opinion on water buybacks and, and resuming?
10: Oh, look, I understand community concerns. No matter where they are, there's a, there's a reluctance in every district to see water transferring out of the area. The the irony of this is that we've had uh, the unbundling of property rights, uh, water trading for almost 20 years now, starting almost a decade before the Basin Plan. Now, the Basin Plan, rightly or wrongly, gets the blame for all water being transferred out of a district. It's difficult to know what water is transferred for what reasons, but Look, it's, there's no doubt that there are some areas, some, some isolated instances of uh, impacts on communities, but overall, in the, across the basin, the, the economic outputs have continued to increase, property values have continued to increase. Sitting here in Northern Victoria, particularly the Shepparton area, uh, it'd be hard to convince anyone that Shepparton wasn't booming. It it really would. So uh, uh, whilst I understand the concerns, there are some isolated impacts. Overall, the uh, I think they're overstated.
3: That was John Pettigrew, water spokesperson for the Goulburn Valley Environment Group, speaking with Danny Brown. On the text line, someone has said, CFA volunteers have not forgotten Dan Andrews' crash-through mentality with Fire Rescue Victoria and the United Firefighters Union stuff up. 0467 is the text line. Six shearers will take to the board at the Warrnambool showgrounds tomorrow morning with the aim of raising $100,000 for mental health support. Supported by an army of volunteers, the shearers will work in shifts across 36 hours, working their way through thousands of sheep. I spoke earlier on with Luke Robertson, committee member for 24-hour Sheer Madness, about the event.
5: It's going to be six shearers shearing sheep for 24 hours at the Warrnambool Showgrounds on Friday and Saturday. Um, they're raising awareness and funds for uh, mental health, so the beneficials this year... Uh, Let's Talk which is a local organisation in Warrnambool. Their aim is to break out into the community and break down the stigma around mental health and the issues that come with it and also um, avenues for people to be able to seek and and speak out and get some help to assist with their own mental health issues.
3: So six shearers shearing in a a relay type format? So the first
5: hour we're going to have uh, all six stands open so the shearers will shear for the first hour individually um, and then they split off into, into teams of two um, and that'll be on a rotation. So they sort of shear average runs are around the three-hour mark. So they'll shear for an hour and a half inside that three hours. Obviously a bit of a half an hour break in between just so that we can logistically get some sheep in and around and trucks in and out and keep up with the livestock. Um, and then the last hour on the Saturday, it's pretty uh, emotional. All six shearers, you know, they're all spent, they're up there, all she- they go for the hour and uh, bring, bring the event home.
3: And the 6 shearers, three of those are Roger Mifsud and he, his sons, Corey and Brody, who've done this sort of thing before?
5: Yeah, so uh, Corey and Roger, this is their third go at doing it. Brody that's his second. Um, so the one in 2019, they, um, the three of them, sure. And before that, I think it was 2017, the uh, Roger and Corey both, sure. But, yeah, then we've got some other boys that have... Uh, sort of experienced some mental health and still sort of suffer today. So they're one of them, two of them from nil. Um, So that's Brandon Bone and um, Josh Bone. We've got Philip Edwards. So originally from Caramut, lives in Warrnambool, still shears. Um, He's been touched by a bit of mental health. And uh, yeah, just jumping on board with the cause. Once again, beautiful shearer. He's represented over at the Nationals in Jamestown just recently in South Australia. Um, Yeah. They're the boys, that's a team. And we've got, uh, so we've got Rousies, they're sort of, they're coming from everywhere. So we put it out to the shearers that we've, they all had to in individually get a Rousie on board. So we've got six Rousies, yeah, and they all sort of rotate through and then also play a bit of a, a role with the runnings of the shed as well, assist with uh, what we call the old sheepo. So that's penning up out the back and keeping the pens full for the boys on the board, keeping the board clean. We've got pressers, we've got truck drivers, yeah, the team's massive.
3: As you said, the Shearers with, with their own mental health challenges in some cases and raising money for a really important cause. So I imagine, Luke, that it's the whole thing's going to be a pretty emotional event. Uh,
5: yeah, it will be. It's a, it's definitely, I mean, it's there's some people, I know one of the Shearers, you know, everyone's got their own things going on. One of the Shearers is in a pretty pretty bad spot at the moment. He just keeps chipping away and, you know, he's, he's one of my best mates, so... Um, I can hopefully talk about him, and you know with the support, I suppose we're all we 're all here there 's been times that he said no nah, 'm not going to do it it 's just too hard, but he 's still here and he's uh, he 's helping set up last night and he 's going to push through and um yeah it's it 's a struggle that everyone I think deals with daily it 's just being able to manage it, getting the right supports in place, and you know the right people around you so that's you know that 's just all we need to push out and that's try and bring the awareness to the community
3: and the shearing industry it 's really taking the lead on on getting mental health out in the open isn't it i mean we just ha- heard on the country hour last week from young bloke luke hillis there who did a, a, a shearing fundraiser for november as you said this is the the third event that some of these shearers have been involved in so yeah the the, the shearing industry really are uh, stepping out and putting uh, putting mental health at the front of the agenda
5: yeah, I think so. I think it's it's been a, a massive problem for so many years inside, you know, even just the rural sector. You've got your guys that slug away and, and, you know, even farmers and stuff that are on the farm working on their own accord and working long hours to, you know, try and make ends meet and busting their back and all that sort of stuff and, and just not being able to, I suppose have that mate there to have a yarn or someone that, you know, might be able to point them in the direction or, you know, even just to be able to find some time to seek some help. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's a pretty confronting issue. I know I've been there myself. um, Yeah, but, you know, once you sort of get the ball rolling and, and uh, you know, you sort of start to feel a bit better on yourself and you're aware of when you're starting to feel a bit down and, you know, where, where the triggers are sort of thing and you can sort of manage them at an early stage rather than get yourself into a deep hole. So I think everyone, you know, this year is exactly as you said, there's a lot going on at the moment with the mental health side of things in the shearing industry and the rural sector. I think just because it's so evident and uh, obviously the stigma's getting broken down a bit too that, you know, it is okay to talk. So the more people, one in three people suffer a mental illness, you know, throughout their lifetime. So that's a lot of people. You think of the amount of people that work in the rural sector around Australia, that's, uh, that's a lot of people that will be suffering or have suffered mental health.
3: And with shearers and the shearing industry being renowned for, for its toughness and, you know, once upon a time its blokiness, uh, do you think they're sort of best place that if shearers can talk about this stuff and put it all out there, then anyone can?
5: Well, yeah, look, I, I think uh, you've got to be mentally strong to be a shearer. I know that. And, uh, you know, I suppose for them to stand up also, you know, their pride's involved and, um yeah, you know, exactly what you say look for them to be able to stand up and, and say hey listen this is it happened and it's not not that bad it's uh it's bad if we don't get assist and get some help and, and be able to manage our, our problems and struggles but yeah exactly right I think foremost you can have as many people standing there talking off a screen and and uh you know sort of telling everyone that hey this is what we should be doing but I think the people to be able to acknowledge it and to get out there, put their hand up and say, Hey, it looks I struggle. This is what I'm doing. You guys, you know, it's okay. You can follow. And um I think it's a big thing. So yeah, it is and full commendment to anyone that's involved or is out there struggling as well. Like it's uh, there'll probably be some triggers with this and hit home but it's it's okay. Um, yeah, it's sort of there is some supports there. It's hard to get some support sometimes. It depends where you are what communities you're in but yeah there is people there and there is someone that will listen to you as well
3: that was luke robertson committee member for 24 hour sheer madness which is a shearing marathon fundraiser happening at the warner showgrounds from nine o'clock tomorrow they start 36 hours later on saturday evening they'll finish and if luke sounded a bit (laughs) under the pump there that's because he was flat out earlier this morning getting those showgrounds ready for that event when i had a chat with him and if you'd like to get any details on, on that event, including uh, where to head along, when to head along, how to support it, you can just jump on Facebook and just type in 24-Hour Sheer Madness, and the page for that event will come up. Uh, on the text line, Nick from Nathalia says, I couldn't disagree with John Pettigrew anymore. Earlier story, the Goulburn Valley is booming, land prices have increased. How do we push more water through the Barmachoke without doing more environmental damage? And that's what these water buybacks are for. Isn't it for the environment, Nick says? If you're quick, 0467 842 is the text line. Uh, $60, thank you. Off to markets now. Just the one market today. Wagga Lambs with Leandax.
11: Good afternoon. Today we saw a huge turnout of 42,000 lambs and almost 30,000 sheep. The competition was fierce as processors from New South Wales and Victoria fought to secure enough heavy lambs before the Christmas break. It was like a state of origin match with both states pushing the prices up. Heavy lambs stole the show, jumping $20 to $30 to record a high of $270. Most lambs over 26 kilos sold consistently from 180 to 218 Trade lambs are also in high demand. Topping at 194 and averaging 680 cents. However, some lambs even sold well above 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store buyers are also very active, looking for lambs to grain feed. They came from local and interstate areas and paid 42 to 107. Merino lambs who bear the cover sold from 61 to 133. A few thousand sheep were sold early in the sale, and trade sheep were making from forty-two to sixty-six, and heavy sheep seventy-five dollars to a hundred and eight. With the rest of the sheep still to be sold, and hoggets they topped at hundred and fifty-eight dollars. Humly, Leanne Dax for MLA.
3: Thanks, Leanne. Wow, that was pretty hot at Wagga, wasn't it? I think Leanne there said two hundred and seventy dollars. I understand that's an outlier, but nonetheless. And I think she said the best lines there, topping 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. That's that's a price we haven't seen for quite a while. So that land market continues its upward, upward trajectory. Uh, that is just about it for today's Country Hour. Remember the website, lots of good stories. You can jump on there and have a read of abc.net.au forward slash rural. You can also find ABC Rural on Facebook and listen back to the Country Hour on the podcast, on the website or your listen app. News time now. It's one o'clock.